If you're trying to figure out how to navigate the tricky tightrope of parenting while you have questions, doubts, and wonderings about your spiritual journey, our podcast is for you. It doesn't matter if your kids are smalls, middles, or bigs. We'll explore what and how we're deconstructing from churchianity, harmful belief systems, and diving deep into the ways we can work this out in parenthood. We're also going to work through ideas for reconstructing a space for our families to thrive under new systems of love and freedom. We can't wait to bring you some hope that you're not alone and that it's really okay, even good, to explore all the possibilities that may have felt closed off in the past. Our podcast is going to offer you grace and space to be exactly where you are and who you are. We're really glad you're here and we're excited for today's episode. Listen in. Christianity should feel like my love for others continues to deepen and not my beliefs are more correct than anyone else's. Ben Kramer. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Deconstructing Mamas podcast. We are talking with Ben Creamer today, and we're really, really excited to have him here. He's from Idaho, and Esther and I have never met anyone from Idaho, so we're really excited about that. So hi, Ben. Thanks for joining us. It's so good to be here. (laughs) (laughs) We're really, really happy to have you. What do you guys think of Idaho when you think of Idaho? Potatoes. Yeah, that's what I thought. (laughs) Because it's on our license plates. All of our state puzzles when we were little was like Idaho with a potato, like right in the center. It's like all I know about Idaho. Awesome. But I'm sure you will share more with us so that we can be more learned on Idaho. (laughs) (laughs) But thanks for joining us. Just tell us a little bit about what your life looks like. I know you're not sleeping much these days with a new baby, (laughs) but what does your day-to-day kind of look like, your home life, your work life? Yeah, like you said, I'm getting used to being a new dad. He's going to be 10 weeks old this Thursday. So everything's just kind of up in the air as far as schedule is concerned. My wife goes back to her job this week. So tomorrow is her first day back from maternity leave. And I was just so thankful to have 12 weeks myself of paternity leave from my pastoral role. And so my day-to-day life is just kind of in flux right now. But usually I spend the days in the office. I'm doing hospital visits, pastoral calls home visits and during COVID, all of those things were just so different, you know, with keeping social distancing and stuff like that. And then it's preparing for worship on Sundays. I'm the only ministry staff of a campus of a larger church. So my campus is about 100 to 150 people on on average. And then the downtown campus is closer to about 900 or, or 1000. But after COVID, our ministry staff was just kind of obliterated. And like a lot of other institutions, we're trying to hire new people. And so I'm covering music, I'm covering just everything <laughs> on for Sundays. It's kind of like a one-man show with a drum on the back and I'm playing my guitar. That's what I, that's what I pictured. <laughs> that's literally what I pictured. Oh, it's too much. It's too much. It's not sustainable. I don't recommend it. It's awful. <laughs> So we're, we're looking for other people to step in, but with inflation and stuff like that. So my days are just super busy trying to get Sunday under wraps and then do the day-to-day work of a, of a pastor. Yeah, that's a lot. Well, what makes your heart come alive sort of outside your pastoral role, outside of being a dad? What brings Ben alive? Yeah. Well, besides sleeping in potato fields. Absolutely. You know, uh, yes. <laughs> besides. 
Besides that, everyone's dream. Yeah. No, I, I am an avid fly fisherman. I grew up fly fishing and that's, that's where I feel like just being on the river and being out in nature. And it goes really well with my other hobbies of backpacking. My, my wife and I, I make the joke that we met on the trail because we both love backpacking so much. Mm -hmm. Uh, We go into the uh, Idaho wilderness as much as we can and go fishing and take pictures. I love to take nature photography as well. Writing is another huge passion of mine where I feel like my heart really comes alive. I can focus and center myself. And so you can write in the wilderness too. You bring your little journal and you just start start writing and the inspiration that the nature brings. And so, yeah, I'd say that those things really do make my, my heart come alive. That's so great. I know I, you're going to be, you guys are going to be those people where I'm like hiking up some mountain and I'm crawling on my hands and knees and the people with the toddler on their backpack are just like skipping along by. And I'm like, Oh my gosh. I couldn't believe it. Like my wife, she wanted to go backpacking when she was like six months pregnant. Like she is outrunning me. Whoever says that women are the weaker sex have never seen anything like this before. This is so crazy. So that's amazing. Sounds like I need to meet her. Yeah, she's great. <laughs> Bring her on next. Yeah, yeah. She should be here <laughs> instead of me. <laughs> well, Ben, thanks so much for coming on. I love what makes your heart come alive. I'm a hiker. My husband's a hiker. We just did Sedona, Arizona, which was the oh, coolest wow. thing I've ever seen in my life. We hiked up some of those uh, mountains and trails and oh, it was amazing. Wow. Oh, so thank you. Oh, love that. So can you tell us just a little bit about your personal faith background? And here's a little kicker. Can you name one thing that you believe differently than say 10 years ago? Just one thing. <laughs> can, you pick? can you pick just one? Can I just, I'll try to narrow it down. Narrow it down. Way. Yeah. Yeah. So my, my faith journey is just, Gosh, it's just so, it's like a roller coaster. Like many of the people that you've interviewed, it feels like that seems to be a theme with a lot of people who find themselves on the more deconstructing side of, of Christianity right now. My parents both moved to Idaho from California when they got married. And so my brother and I were born here. And for several different reasons, they found themselves in a homeschool community and homeschooling was a really big conviction for both my parents. But the homeschool co-op they joined turned out to be a white separatist homeschool group that were advocates of a religious ideology called Christian identity that's from the 1930s. And it, it believes that Uh, Satan slept with Eve in the garden and gave birth to the Jewish race. And so the Jewish race is full of evil blood and the beasts of the fields are all people of color. And so my, my mom is trying to navigate this in rural Idaho. And this was hundreds of homeschool families that were part of this co-op, this homeschool co-op. So she's like reading through the curriculum when we are getting to history and we'd been a part of it for about three years at this point. And they turned out to be Holocaust deniers. They thought that slavery was the evangelistic tool that Christ was calling us to for Black people. And the scales started falling from their eyes. So Ruby Ridge happened, which is a standoff with the federal government in 1993. And that's when they just realized, oh my gosh, these are white supremacists. And so they left that homeschool co-op, which is still in operation today, by the way. 
they've turned into a big private school here in Idaho. And so that's always in the back of my mind when we're talking about indoctrination and things like that's that's happening in, in school. So they left and went to a non-denominational church, which to my little mind, for what I heard from the pulpit was virtually indistinguishable from the homeschool co-op that we were worshiping in at the time. And so we went through like six church splits. I saw a pastor get arrested for credit fraud. We had to change the locks on the church. And so by the time I got, I felt called to be a pastor when I was seven, you know, what I felt like to be a very clear call, but it was all really encouraged by the community around me. Like you have these gifts for being a pastor, you know, all, all sorts of things like that. But then I found out that the pastor was spiritually manipulating my parents and other people in the community. My mom had a had a brain tumor, and it turns out the pastor at the time said that if you don't experience healing from this brain tumor, both of your sons are going to lose their salvation and end up in hell. My upbringing was rife with things like that. And so by the time I got to senior in high school, still, still homeschooled from kindergarten to 12th grade, I didn't know what to do. Like <laughs> I knew what I didn't want to be in the church, but I also didn't know what a good, healthy church should look like. So I took a year off between high school and college and really just started asking a whole bunch of questions about Christianity. There's really two major sources of religion in Idaho. It's Mormonism and the Church of the Nazarene. Your two options at that time. And so I, I was reading all about both, trying to find my, my way as, with this call for ministry. And I stumbled upon Wesley's sermons, John Wesley. And I was like, this whole grace thing, I can really get behind that. If that's really what Wesley stood for, I could get behind that. Northwest Nazarene University started this whole scholarship program for people who are looking to be pastors. And I started pursuing a degree in religion and, and all of those things. And so my introduction to Wesleyan theology is really what kept me pursuing the pastoral call for what felt like I could actually make something like that a part of who I am. That's the, that's my childhood upbringing. My my journey as a pastor is is rife with some other things too. But I think that that answers your your question. Yeah. So I would imagine ten years ago, your differing beliefs. I can't. Even... Yeah. So I came into NNU, my university experience, believing deeply about the the rapture, preparing like you know, like a lot of Idahoans, we had a stockpile of guns in the household and like we're preparing for this end of world event right it was real the government was going to come in it's an evil cabal that's like running things behind the scenes and we need to be ready for the apocalypse right i would say my view of the end times is probably what has dramatically different from who i was back then and a lot of views of things that I was told were like of other races, of women, um, of masculinity. So many things have just been, those tables have been flipped over in my, my theology. What do you feel like was your main emotion during those times? Was there this intense sense of fear? Were you angry? I'm always interested in that, like how people were feeling in, in these times. I know everyone's experience is different, but I, as a firstborn, I was a people pleaser. 
my main feeling was shame, deep shame, and wondering if it was even okay to ask these questions. So I, I just felt really isolated and alone. And I just read a lot of books by myself, but I felt faith crisis after faith crisis, like what I'm reading in historical Christianity, what I see in the early church and what I see from contemporaries, like more modern contemporaries, like Bonhoeffer, Martin Luther King doesn't match the experience of my upbringing. And so I just felt, I felt super alone. I felt like I was having a faith crisis right after another, as I'm learning these things. And it felt like I was never going to be able to measure up from the expectations of what a pastor looked like in the faith tradition of my, my upbringing. How could you? I'm sorry. Those of you who can't see us, when Ben was talking, I think I just had a shocked look on my face for for the entire time because we hear those things and people know they're in the background. But to meet somebody who's lived through that major, I would say, trauma in childhood is sort of mind blowing. And to know that it's continuing today helps me at least know that, hey, all those people out there who are saying it's continuing are not wrong. Right. They're absolutely absolutely right. It is prevalent even today in this 2022 society that we're living here in the United States. Wow. Wow. So shock, 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 not awe, but shock. (laughs) I follow you obviously on social media. And anytime I see these black boxes come up and I see the word (laughs) B-R-C-R-E-M-R, I'm across my screen. I'm stopping, I'm stopping and I'm reading it because what you're putting out there is so powerful and you have such a good way with taking very complicated thoughts and ideas and putting them in a few words. That's very hard. And I know like my soul kind of gets like, wow, my mind is blown. My heart is kind of in a good way, blown wide open. And you really get me thinking so... I don't know how long you've been doing this, but what caused you to sort of go on the internet and get your voice out there in this way? I think I stumbled upon it really by accident. I was a senior pastor of of a small church in in Boise, a a different church. And I was in about my, my six and a half, seven year mark of being a pastor. And it was a small church of about 80 you know, 85 people and spent the majority of my time as the only ministry person on staff there as, as well. I increasingly started hearing these questions being asked from people in my community. And I realized that I had been asking these questions my whole Christian journey. And I shared something uh, like a letter with a friend and they really resonated with that. And that's really when my passion for writing started to, to take more of a cohesive form. Um, And I'd always enjoyed writing, but I'd never share it with anyone until that point. And so then 2019 happened (laughs) and I just felt this deep passion, this deep lament, really, for lack of a better word, this deep sorrow for what I was seeing happening in evangelicalism, which was so much a part of my upbringing. Um, I would say it was from fundamentalism to evangelicalism. And then I was pastoring in a very evangelical denomination at that time, the Church of the Nazarene. And so I just, I published a lament for the evangelical tradition You know, I wasn't trying to target anyone in particular, just the tradition itself and talk about how this is what you taught us. 
And this is what we're seeing from you right now. Mm-hmm. And what are we supposed to do with that? And that was like kind of my first step into social media with that. And it was within a matter of a week, it was shared over 10,000 times. And I, like, I, I was shocked. I couldn't believe the hate mail I was getting, but also the, the really encouraging things where people were saying, this is where I am. And I couldn't put words to that reality. Mm-hmm. And so I think what, what draws me to that is if I can help someone put their own words to their lived experience. Mm. I feel like that's such a first step to healing. And Mm -hmm. that's what I want. I want people to be able to have their trauma be validated, the religious trauma be validated, but also to be able to put their own words to it, to feel affirmed in that and heard and seen, and then hopefully walk together towards some sense of, of, of healing in their context. I love that idea of affirming other people. One of the things that has been hardest about this deconstruction journey, and even for Esther and I, since, you know, starting our podcast is these kind of lost relationships and this sort of loss of respect from the evangelical community, because we have these questions and we're searching in this, in this new way. And I think having a pastor affirm some of the things that you're going through is just so, so important and so, so healing because so many people in our community love Jesus or they love God or they have some sort of spiritual connection, but they just don't know how to hold both of those things, right? They don't know how to hold this kind of new way of thinking about God and this desire to be a part of a different kind of church. And so your affirmations on social media of just like, hey, here I am, I'm a pastor and I'm seeing this too, is been so healing for me. I know, me too. That's so encouraging to hear. (laughs) I love that you're somebody who has stayed in the church and are actually ministering in the more traditional church setting. And I know you'll tell us more about what your church looks like because I am somebody, I know Liz too, we're very passionate about community and we're very passionate about, we're both very passionate about God and creating a space where we understand who God really is, not necessarily what we've been taught all our life. And I would have stayed until we were quote unquote kicked out for not agreeing with some very narrow minded fundamentalist thinking Mm. that we were asked to actually sign a document and we couldn't in our integrity do that anymore because it felt very exclusive and felt very black and white and felt like all those things where I was heading did not match. Yeah. So I really appreciate it. And I know Liz and I are always like, Hey, did you find a church? What are you doing? (laughs) What are you doing now? And everybody seems to be on this journey of what do we do next? Yeah. So as somebody who has stayed in the system and you're watching, I'm sure people leave just collectively in America, say in droves, Mm -hmm. can you give us hope for somebody who's on the inside? Give us a little glimmer. (laughs) I think one of the the hardest things about being on this journey as a pastor is that sometimes you just want to take a break just to figure out some questions and not go on Sunday. But when it's your job, you're there and having to wrestle with these things while trying to give hope to others behind the, the pulpit. And like that, that tension, I still have not gotten to a comfortable place yet. So, so like trying to trying to bridge that gap and be a voice of hope for others while trying to work out, 
you know, my own journey has been really difficult. I also was pushed out of my denomination and I had, I honestly, like they were stripping my credentials. Like they were going to take my ordination away and they had their reasons for it. I had requested a special assignment for the church that I'm at now with a different denomination that is still in the Wesleyan tradition, but they didn't follow protocol, even in their own standards and rules for the denomination. There were closed meetings that minutes weren't recorded with those in leadership. And I'd seen the same thing happen to colleagues across the, the country during this, this time. I had to finally end up just mailing my certificate into the denomination and had no, no prospects of what I was going to do. And then the United Methodist Church, the bishop of this area, heard what was happening and moved heaven and earth, stopped the stripping of credentials from happening before they could transfer me over and literally rescued me in no uncertain terms. A lot of people will say, why did you leave? Because I was in that denomination for over 14 years. I didn't ever imagine that I was going to be gone. Really, I was rescued, you know, and so I'm now in a context of feeling rescued by this place, but still with those deep wounds of being pushed out, who I am as Christian, let alone who I am as a pastor. Mm. And so I, I would say the biggest source of hope for me that I could give as a pastor is that when I see someone have enough courage to join worship on Sunday, who has experienced that trauma, that actually comes back a people in a place where they felt unwelcomed and pushed out. That to me gives me hope because that sort of strength coming from being traumatized and then coming into a sanctuary where they had felt traumatized before, but seeking community and connection, it's that courage and that strength where I often feel like I have to have going behind the pulpit myself where we can meet in that place in worship is just so sacred to me. And then we share communion together and say, even though Jesus was betrayed, knew that he was being betrayed, we come together in the, those feelings of trauma and betrayal and seek hope and, and healing together. That is what so many of us are looking for is just this community of beautiful humanity and to just be able to come together and say, we don't know what's going on, but here's some things that we do know and we can just come together in this and it can be enough. And Yeah. yeah, it's just beautiful. For us, this podcast has kind of been our rescuing place because yeah. And that's sort of what we're trying to do here is to, you know, create a weird, I know, online community, but we didn't know what we were going to do. And our voices were stopped in the places that we were. And yet I know both of our husbands told us at the time, Hey, you guys still have voices, you know, <laughs> your voices yeah, matter. And yeah. just because it's not in this place, doesn't in these particular places, doesn't mean that there isn't a place for your voice. Well, I have to affirm your guys' work too, because like with all the problems that the internet brings, there's such a place of safety though, in podcasts like, like yours, like no one else is doing the work that you guys are doing, especially for those who are parents themselves, having the conversations that you are is creating sanctuary in a space where a lot of people feel like that's the only space they can go to, 
cultivate some sense of spirituality yeah. and healing. And so I, I don't feel like it's an either oh, or, right? right? Like yeah. the church has to be in this online space as well. And so I, I think you guys are doing such, such mm. important yeah. work. I think it's hard too, because while some people are being pushed out of the church, I mean, I had a lot of trauma in my church growing up, but most recently the church that I was attending and was actually members of overall, they were a pretty supportive community. I didn't agree with all of the theologies, but I was sort of able to kind of sidestep that and still create this community. But for me, what really pushed me over the edge was the idea of like, I can't send my kids to Sunday school here. What is being taught no longer for me, I can kind of separate things and say like, that's not, you know, I don't believe in that, but this community is great for me in these ways. But when you have kids, there's that whole other level of these are tiny people who are sponges and what are they receiving from these communities? And so I think there's a lot of that too. There's this sort of loss of people saying like, I can't live this lie anymore that I was living before because it no longer makes sense for yeah. my kids. And that's yeah. kind of this weird, odd loss too, right? In a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And I know that you're, you still are sort of kind of new to the parenting world, but I think as soon as you become a parent, you start to think about those things, right? You start to think about right. like, what do I right. want them to know about God and what kind of community would, do I want them to be a part of? And that's hard. Yeah, it really is. We'll get right back to today's podcast episode. But we wanted to give a shout out to a few of our Patreon supporters, Claire Allison, Stephanie Milo, and Kathy Lan Morell. Thank you so much for your support. For just $3 a month, you can be a part of our private Facebook group and help us keep the lights on at Deconstructing Mamas. Now, back to the episode. Becoming a parent has this excitement, but also a lot of trepidation. Like, who am I going to be as a father? Because I know my parents did the absolute best they could. and because of the culture and environment they were trying to parent. Like a lot of the things that traumatized me were things that they couldn't control or hold back themselves. Like they thought they were doing their best and that religious culture that we were in is what did a lot of harm. And so like those questions are like, how can I be the best parent I can be, but also what, what people am I sharing culture with what people am I living life with that my son will grow up in my kids will grow up in can you take a few minutes to explore that quote that we talked about in the beginning and I'm just going to read it again if that's okay yeah Christianity should feel like my love for others continues to deepen and not my beliefs are more correct than anyone else's so when and how have you seen Christianity be more about correct beliefs and we have touched on that a little bit and less about loving others? And how are you personally and corporately in your job as a pastor seeking to change that now? We have a couple of more hours to talk about this, right? (laughs) (laughs) I felt like in the experience that I had with Christianity, it really was this list of beliefs that I, that I had to hold as absolute truth with this corresponding fear that those beliefs were always threatened by secularism or whatever enemy you want to put in that camp. And so I had to double down and be sure I knew that these things were true and make sure almost police my culture and other Christians to make sure they held those beliefs in the same exact way. 
I really feel like that is the root of religious fundamentalism is that if you do not fit in these boxes of rigid beliefs, then you're, you're doomed. You know, your even your eternity is in, is in question. My graduate work focused a lot on the first three centuries of the early church. And this was the formation of the creeds and things like that. And I discovered, especially Bonhoeffer is one of my favorite figures to read about his witness in the world is just, it's just such an example for me. But this idea of a confessional church, the creeds were born out of what they confessed to be true, not something they said, this is what we are certain about. Like we are so confused and bewildered by the resurrection. We are witnesses to it. And all we can do is confess to that truth. And we can do no other than to be compelled by that in the world and confess that to be true by our service of, uh, to other people too. Before what God has done to me, like they are so in awe of God's self-sacrificial love on the cross that that's all they could do in the world for other people. And they were the marginalized, the peasants, the poor in Rome for the first three centuries of the early church. They were not the people in power, but they still, the martyrs of the Testament of this faith, that they confessed this reality to be true and could not do anything else but love other people in that same way, serving the poor, lifting up the marginalized, advocating for the oppressed. That is the witness that we see. And then Constantine came to power and just ruined everything for the church for the next like 2000 years or so. <laughs> One of the great quotes that I love about that period in history is before Constantine, it took courage to be a Christian. And after Constantine, it took courage to be a pagan because Christians were in power. And I, I feel like we have, feel a lot of those same tensions right now with in a majority Christian culture. And so personally, for me, that has shaped the way that I read scripture in a confessional way. Rather than looking for certainty, I don't know if you guys know Peter Enns. He <laughs> writes pretty prolifically Never heard on of him. reading. Yeah, you might have mixed feelings, but his his work on the like the sin of certainty and talking about how the Bible actually works, especially for me as a Wesleyan, that speaks so much to the posture that I'm trying to disciple others in the local church. And, and I, as a pastor, even my, my temptation as a recovering fundamentalist is to be just as fundamentalist in these new mm-hmm. beliefs, mm-hmm. <laughs> quote unquote, new yeah. beliefs as I was in my old ones. But the whole goal of moving away from religious fundamentalism is to not be a fundamentalist, you know, at all. (laughs) That's the journey of faith. I feel suspended. I don't have the answers for all of these things, but I am encouraged in a humility trying to navigate this world. And so the church should be a place where those questions and those confessions are prioritized, not just encouraged, but heard from the pulpit. I don't know what this means this scripture text or this doctrine, but we've gathered here together this morning and Sunday to figure it out, to confess and ask these questions and to have good dialogue. And that's where wisdom is born and to have a faith that's more centered on wisdom rather than this, this certainty notion of, of fundamentalism. I love that word that you use to suspended because I feel like it gives me such an imagery of just kind of like someone just floating in kind of the abyss with their hands out wide and yeah. their eyes to the heavens. And they're just like, 
whatever yeah. it is. Because I think you're right. That's such a beautiful imagery and such an important one. We don't want to be certain of our beliefs in any direction. That's not faith. Right. There's so much that we don't know. And so to be able to sit in the not knowing mm. is really what we want to be doing. Yeah. Well, because then who does it make the center of your faith? Right. When certainty is everything. Right. It's you're still like, it's right. me. And I really do want God and my neighbor <laughs> to really be that relationship to be the center of, of my faith. And you can't do that when it's all about my correct yeah. beliefs. It's funny that you said you don't want to necessarily go and be the fundamentalist for the other side. And I'm kind of coming to the end of this book by Brian McLaren called Faith After Doubt. And he talks about the four stages of faith. And there's simplicity, which is black and white thinking, and then complexity, which is, hey, I, I see that there's these two things and it's a little more nuanced. And then you go into a stage of perplexity, which is like where a lot of us are. And I thought like, oh, maybe the end result is back to, I know everything. And the actual final stage is harmony. And I was sort of picturing this symphony where everybody's playing a different instrument and yet it sounds great because there's dissonance and there's all these things related to harmony. I love that idea of the harmony and back to the whole parenting thing that we were talking about earlier. And I've raised my kids now. I was thinking this just mirrors the childhood journey where little, little kids need black and white. Yeah. And then yeah. they move into that stage of like four, five, six, seven, maybe through the elementary years where they're, oh, that person isn't the same skin color as me as, oh, she has two mommies mm -hmm. or actually like my friend likes trucks and I like flowers. So they move into this understanding of complexity. And then here it is, they get to the teenage years where they're in perplexity. Oh my gosh, I don't want to believe the same yeah. thing as my parents. What is going on here? I have a million questions. And then hopefully in the end, after they've worked through it themselves, they move into this bigger space that you're, I think we as humans are designed it to move into, which is harmony, being yeah. able to hold all of this together and not saying I'm right and you're wrong. And when I was looking back at my own faith journey, I think what happens in a typical church setting here is we're okay with stage one and we're okay with stage two. People get to stage three. What do they do to their teenagers? And everybody knows I write in this Moms of Big Space. They call teenagers rebellious. Yeah. You're, you can't think like that. You'll get kicked out of our family unless you do what we do. Go to college, go to church, all these things. You are rebellious. And so it doesn't surprise me that when those questions arise in me, I almost circle back to that teenage space where I was told I was bad. And you either go one of two directions. Teenagers go back to their parents' thinking and you know do everything. Yeah. They want to be good. They want to belong. And in order to do that, they have to move backwards. Or a lot of times people move away. And you hope, and this is what I know I want for my own kids, is I want us to be in a place of harmony where, hey, you get to be you. I get to be me. We all matter. Oh, that's so good. We all matter. Your line of thinking, my line of thinking. And we're all in this and it's a, a harmonious relationship. No wonder we have all that shame and guilt because we have questions. Because as teenagers, we were told we were rebellious. Yeah. Well, at the end of the day, it's like we really want to foster autonomy. You know, I was thinking about that same kind of idea, Esther, that I am almost like reparenting myself, right? My parents did the best that they can. They're wonderful parents. But my upbringing was very planned out for me. So I didn't know how to answer questions for myself or figure things out. And so mm. a lot of what we 
I think need to do better for each other and better for our children is less of like, let me give you all this information because I'm afraid mm. that if you don't have it, you won't know which direction to go. And instead create this kind of environment where our kids actually can figure out for themselves how they feel and what they want and what makes sense. And what do you think is good? Wow. And what do you think is bad? And so even just in the way that, you know, my husband and I were talking about this last night, just the way that we have chosen to parent our children, we were focusing less on the information that we're giving them and more on kind of helping them learn how to navigate life. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's powerful. If harmony is the goal, right? Harmony is the mm -hmm. goal, even like based on your church, like your church that you're pastoring, I feel that almost from you, even your emotion around that earlier, I feel that idea of like, oh my goodness, we want to be a, a safe place where everybody gets to be themselves yeah. come. And that yeah, is yeah. harmony. And that's sort of the like oneness mm -hmm. that Jesus talks about. It's not uniformity, but it is unity. And it's like, ah, right. So, ah. so yesterday was Pentecost Sunday. And if you want to see a beautiful example of God's desire for not uniformity, but unity. Everyone is heard in their own language, like their own backgrounds, their own contexts, your men and your women, your sons, your daughters will prophesy like this beautiful picture. You're young and you're old. We'll see you have visions and dream dreams. Everyone, every background is heard and understood. Mm -hmm. And it's not a colonizing effect of the Holy Spirit. It is this partnership with humanity and calling humanity to partner together. It's not this uniformity approach. It's really this, yes, we are different and everyone is diverse. So then how do we come together and really listen and hear each other? so that we can meet each other's needs that was that's what always wrecked me about pentecost so i, I feel like that's you're just right in line with the church calendar, so <laughs> uh, so then now that you're a dad so we were saying now that you're a dad yay 10 weeks i'm sure you have so much wisdom to share with us which i know you oh do. yeah got it all figured i'm out. jealous i want to be i want to be i want to be a 10 week old baby in the kramer household <laughs> <laughs> So what have you learned even just briefly about your own faith journey and even perhaps God in and among all of it in this short amount of time that you can share with us? Oh, gosh. <laughs> it's more on the thought of like, I'm comparing what I experienced and what my hopes are for Foster. Mm -hmm. And, you know, any any siblings that he may have in the future, my wife and I both have this deep desire for adoption. We're not sure if that's something that will actually happen, but we're really hoping to have, have some more kids in the future too. And so that this contrast of like my upbringing compared to what the life I want for my kids. And I think really where, because it all comes with this question is like, how are we supposed to navigate this together? And I think in my conversations with my wife and really reflecting on my past, I've just thought, I can't parent my kids as if they're already traumatized by religion. I felt myself, I'm already an anxious person. And so like, I can tell when anxiety's forming in my own body. And so like, when I think about the future for Foster, I can already tense up on what I feel like I need to protect him from, mm. which if that's not the core of fundamentalism, 
you need to have these sets of beliefs to protect yourself, to isolate yourself and defend God, defend the Bible, defend Christianity from the secular world that's always threatening you, right? And so if I take this approach of just trying to protect him from these things, rather than partner with him, equip him, because I don't know what the world's going to look like when he's my age, trying to protect him from some future threats that I don't even know exist, it just feels like a false starter. My approach is like, okay, I can't parent him as if he's already traumatized because that puts me in a posture of trying to protect him from threats. How do I equip him with the things that I've experienced in healing myself? And I love that you mentioned like they think in such black and white either or realities. And I think sometimes like even talking about like our bodies, right? Like those are the, some of the first conversations you have with littles, if I'm not mistaken. I grew up having all of these kind of nicknames with the mm-hmm. more, you know, concealed body parts when it actually gives kids more ownership over their bodies if you just use their right names for mm-hmm. things and that they have ownership over their bodies. And that actually equips them as they go out into the world to say, no, this is like my space. And I have more ownership and knowledge over who I am. And other people don't have authority over this. I give them permission to hug me or to, you know, to touch me in any way, right? You're actually equipping them when you're giving them even the names for things. We have this sexualized, we've been alive long enough that we have all of these narratives going on in our head with these names. When they're just kids, they've never heard the name even before. So they don't have all of that history, that background, those narratives going on in their head. They just want to know what it's called. I felt myself really trying to process those things as I'm processing my religious journey and saying, he doesn't have all of those narratives going on in his head. And so how can I just name the wisdom, name the love, name the peace, joy, compassion, kindness that I see from God and have that be the starting point rather than trying to protect him from, from threats. We think we need to have all these big plans, right? And it can be as simple as being like, that's your vagina. That's your penis. Like there it is. You know, I think everything that you said, Ben, when you teach your kids to have ownership of the things that they do understand. And when you teach them to navigate the things that they do understand, then they're going to be so much better equipped to navigate those other things and to make that transition. Mm-hmm. Like you said, like those just really tiny things. Mm-hmm. Then later on, your kid is just way better able to express themselves in other ways. And so we start with those small, tiny things and they matter. And I think our culture, even outside of the Christian culture, I think we're moving towards those things. We're moving towards more of this like child led parenting and not that they can do whatever the heck they want, but just that we're listening. Mm -hmm. We're listening to these little people and they matter and their voices matter. And if we can just start there and take all of like our biblical theological stuff out of it, we can create Mm -hmm. these people that are then able to process their own faith and process their own spirituality. Oh my gosh. (laughs) I think what you said, Ben, is so incredibly powerful. And Liz, what you're getting after is, again, for people who can't see me, when Ben said, I don't have to what did you say again about the teaching them from their that they have religious trauma already, correct? Yeah. You don't yeah. have to go from that starting point because then it will create that fundamentalism, that big idea to protect like at all costs, put them in this right. bubble over here away from all the evangelicals. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. 
Right. I love that because I know when I, because I have anxiety too, when I first went to counseling and I was spewing all this stuff out about my kids, I think they were like seven, nine, 11, 12. And then my counselor said to me, they don't have your wounds. We need to reparent ourselves and then parent our kids. <laughs> They're going to have their own stuff. So we need to help them navigate yeah. that, not our history of wounds. Gosh, that speaks even to the role of the pastor. Yeah. Like I have people who are 80 plus years in my congregation. They do not have the same religious trauma or wounds from the church that my generation has. So I can't pastor them in the same way. Really, I feel like this is such a good metaphor for what we're going through as a religion, Christianity right now. When we teach our kids the wrong names for things, what are we teaching them? To evade, to not name the reality, to kind of skirt the issue and all those things. And that's what we're seeing in so many of the scandals of Christianity. Mm -hmm. We're not able to name racism. We're not able to name sexism. We're not able to name the abuses of power that mm -hmm. happens. You know, we just kind of say, this is your opinion, or this is my theological belief or whatever. It's like, we can't even come together to speak a unified language about these problems because we've created this culture of evasion. We can't name these things clearly as people of God. And so no wonder you have these deconstructing communities because you have this desire for the church to just name reality yeah. that we see. And so when we're training kids to be that way, we're not equipping them to be truth tellers, which ironically is the whole desire of fundamentalism to protect people because they have the truth. Right. Mm -hmm. But that whole evasion and protection of perceived threats is just counterproductive mm -hmm. to that desire to be to be true truth tellers. Oh, yeah. We're glad we had you on. <laughs> yeah. I feel so thankful today. It's all so good. And how much more important for us to be able to see from other people's perspectives, to be able to empathize, to be open-minded, because none of us are the same. None of us. I mean, Esther and my, our journeys are so similar right now in this moment, but there are still so many differences between what we've lived through. And so it doesn't matter how like-minded you feel with someone. We are so, so different. And so this ability to just sit with each other in humanity and be able to talk about things and discuss things and be open and not mm -hmm. come at relationships in fear. That's all yeah. so important. And that's really yeah. what we want. That's really what we all want. Yeah. Like you said, we want... We want this sort of this truth telling. We want to just right. live in this community where we can be real. And that's for so many of us, that's what we want in the church. We don't yeah. hate the church, right? We just want right. the church to be what it was meant to be, <laughs> right? In the very beginning. Yeah, right. absolutely. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Like Jesus. Yeah. But just even like all the different gifts, like it's like the body of Christ, all that stuff. It's like, oh my gosh, just the idea that Paul had of, Wow, everybody's so different. And every yeah. single person is welcome. Everyone is so different and everyone is welcome and no one is more important than the other. I am so on board with that yeah. right now. What I need to do to not sit in a place of black and white thinking and judging is I need to listen to people's stories. Yeah. I need to get proximate to their pain. Yes. And then I need to pay very close attention to their dreams. Yeah. And when I can yeah. do that, I think this is why Liz and I love doing this, listening to your story and hearing your hopes and dreams. I want to be like your friend, your mom, whatever it is. I just want to know you more. 
I want to see yeah. what, what makes Ben, Ben, what makes his heart come alive? And then as I have that understanding, I'm not going to sit in judgment on you as you navigate yeah. your own world, as you navigate your life. Mm -hmm. And that to me is what, what is the beauty of what Jesus wanted for us here on the earth. Yeah. I just want that. That's what I want. <laughs> I can be very judgmental. Yeah. And I know that that's really kind yeah. of a cure for it. Yeah. We all can. And I think through this process, I'm learning more and more just how judgmental I can be without even mm. realizing it. And the beautiful kind of like most important and hardest thing I think about this journey has been able to do what Esther said, to be able to sit with people who are atheists and be able to say, gosh, I see where you're coming from with that. And then to be able to mm -hmm. sit with the strictest of fundamentalists and say, gosh, if you really believe that, of course it's scary. Or of course you yeah. don't want to associate yes. with me. You know, as painful as it is to watch relationships kind of fall away, and that's been very painful, but to be able to say like, you know, if that's true for you, then I understand. And yeah. There's something so beautiful and so Christ-like and powerful about actually being able to understand where other mm -hmm. people are coming from, even if right. you're in a totally different space than them. Mm. Yeah. That to me is why God became a human being. Because <laughs> God was divine, Amen. eternal, didn't know what it meant to be human. And empathy brought God down to live as one of us and knows all of the struggles, everything that we go through, because I don't know who said it, but I love this quote. You can't hate or judge up close, mm. right? When you're in that relationship with someone, then you understand and can empathize and can work together. Mm. And so I really do feel like that's just like right where it starts. That's where the Christian journey starts is the incarnational reality that God became a human being. And so we humans are most like Jesus when we empathize and see another person's pain and understand why they see the world. And another quote, gosh, I feel like I'm just like, quoting platitudes right now, but like <laughs> people won't care what you know until they know that you care. Uh -huh. Right. Yeah. And so like that, that sort of Christ-like compassion, I think right. is just, it's not embodied uh, enough. Right. You know? It's the idea of us incarnating each other's worlds. That's way better put. You should have just said that. My husband and I have been marriage mentors for a long time with engaged couples for about 20 years. And we talk a lot about that. And it can be in any relationship, any relationship, but in the marriage relationship, a lot of times that's what we want to do is the best marriage relationship is when each other can see each other's point of view. And we use the fancy yeah. word, incarnate each other's world, just like Jesus did yeah. and God did for us. Yeah. So we have our little mantra and it's grace for who you have been and maybe are now and space for who you're becoming. So we're going to end with this question for you. Mm. What is something that you have to show your past and present self grace for? And then how about something you want to give your future self space for now? Yeah, I think it was such an important question. I think the thing that I find myself needing, I'm a firstborn. And this is the other part of that, like wondering how I'm going to parent a firstborn son because <laughs> I was yeah. a firstborn son. And so I think as a firstborn, you're the first one who gets all the rules of the household, the rules of the world. And, and you want to, you're just kind of naturally inclined to be a perfectionist. At least I was. And so when I look back and see 
the mistakes I made, even as an adult, when I wasn't, I wasn't able to really truly confront my trauma until, you know, my late twenties and early thirties. And so I didn't, I had to come to a breaking point to where I understood that I was operating as a traumatized kid as an adult. And so I take ownership over those things that I made mistakes in my past, but I also, I'm trying now to move into a season of giving myself grace of saying that was also because of trauma and it wasn't because you failed. Like you can't put all of the impetus on your failures as if you intentionally did those things. Cause it's very, very different. So I, I try to give myself grace for that in, in the past. And also now when, you know, I respond, my wife could be the best person to tell you that I often respond with a trauma reaction rather than trying to be present in the moment and hear outside of that in a non-anxious presence, right? My wife is probably the best pastor I have in, in my, in my life. Um, and she's a, I don't know how much you guys talk about the Enneagram, but I'm an Enneagram five wing four and she's a nine wing eight. And so nines are just like, just peaceful. And that's really what I needed. And so trying to be in a not anxious presence, like she is, is really what I try to aim for and giving myself grace really allows me to say, okay, you can calm down. You don't have to be perfect in this moment. You just need to be present and really give yourself a chance to, to understand what's going on. And so I think that's the space I'm trying to give myself in the future too, is that giving yourself that grace to not let anxiety be what shapes my reputation or shapes my perspectives of others and even of God, um, that I can undo some of that perfectionism that I've, I'm measuring myself by constantly mm-hmm. to then be able to say perfectionism is not what God judges me by. It's not what God measures me by. <laughs> and it honestly, half the time, it's not what a lot of other people measure me by either. And so I need to step into those, those realms of grace and say, how can I be that non-anxious presence and I actually become a better person more like the person I want to be when I'm able to give myself some of that grace ah thank you for this counseling session Ben that's powerful cool. stuff I live uh, the last three years I've lived with a nine and a five. Oh wow I appreciate the beauty of you being a five as the investigator because I don't think your words would be out there in the way that they are now, mm-hmm. if you were not that five, the one who's asking all the questions, the one that's investigating and checking, checking. And yeah. so what a gift, like, again, the Enneagram also says, like, we're all so different and yet we all bring ourselves. And as soon as you said you were five, I was like, of course he is. What a, <laughs> what a gift that is though, to the rest of us, yeah. just that constant looking uh-huh. and searching and wondering and questioning yeah. and asking And then I love that your wife is the nine. My husband is the nine. I'm the mean eight. So there's that. (laughs) My husband's a nine. I'm four wing five. Oh, you're four. So I'm like flip flop from you. Yeah. Yeah. And just the idea that we're so different and going back to what we were saying earlier, the idea of, wow, we're all welcome here. We're all welcome. We all have gifts to give to each other. So I know I'm Mm -hmm. grateful for you. And so 
if anybody wants to find those interesting black memes, I think they're from Twitter. Um, and somehow they get turned into a square box for Instagram and for Facebook. But can you tell people where they can find you? <laughs> sure. So like, yeah, like you said, it's uh, Twitter, BR Kramer. Um, that's both uh, Twitter and Instagram, my handle there, but you can also find Benjamin Kramer on, on Facebook as well. And I have a really clunky blog that I'm trying to update and get, uh, just kind of renovate right now. It's so funny that the Enneagram five is called the investigator. Cause in college, I created this WordPress blog, didn't know a thing about the Enneagram at all. And I called my blog constant investigation. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. Oh, I love that. You should <laughs> keep that. Keep like, that one. Keep I it. know, right? That's oh my so... gosh. So, fun. so that's my blog, Constant Investigations into the Christian Life. Oh my, gosh, my blog is. That's amazing. So here's another question for you. If our listeners and maybe me, of course, Liz and I, want to watch you preach ever, do you guys have any kind of yes. online streaming? Because if people don't have a church they go to and want to hear goodness right. from you, but can you just tell them where For that sure. is? That's a good point. So I'm the campus pastor at Cathedral of the Rockies, and we're a United Methodist Church uh, in Boise, Idaho. Um, and we do stream our full service online on Sundays. And actually we're moving to a place where we can offer just the sermons on a podcast, but we're also hoping to have a time where we cover bigger topics in like 10 minutes or less on the podcast as well. It's trying to create that online community for theological questions and stuff like that. And so Cathedral of the Rockies, both the downtown campus and the Amity campus is where I pass. Amity, Idaho. Is that really a name of a town? So Amity is the street. Yeah, we're right in the heart of Boise, but the Amity campus is the street that we're we're closest. We're learning so much about Idaho today. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It makes me want to come there. I'm sure it's like probably the most beautiful state ever. Is it? It's more Nevada-y and Southern Idaho. Lots of desert, but if you go two hours north of Boise, no, it's horrible. It's all terrible. I've traveled all over the world and the Sawtooth Wilderness in Idaho is still my favorite place on the planet. Like it's absolutely stunning. If you scroll all the way down on my Instagram, you'll see all of my nature photos. Ooh, I love that. That's awesome. Now my husband's going to be like, as soon as he listens to this podcast, he's going to be like, okay, we're going to, what is it called again? Sawtooth. Sawtooth Wilderness. Yeah, I guess yeah. we're headed there. That's where going to be on our bucket list. <laughs> I'm just glad your church isn't called like Ignite or something like that. (laughs) Revive. Yeah. (laughs) No offense. No offense if there's anyone listening and that's your church name. I literally read something the other day about if your church is a verb. (laughs) Yes. I saw that same thing. And I was like, I was just like dying laughing. No, mainline denominations have the other problem where it's like, we are Boise United Methodist First Church. Yeah, like, yeah. who can fit that? Yeah. Great band name, bro. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hashtag, yeah. Yeah. How do you fit that? Yeah. Oh my gosh. I know. Thank you so much, Ben, for coming on. We really appreciate it. This has just been such a great, great interview. And I've just loved being here. And again, I just, I'm so thankful for the both of you and the work that you guys are doing. Thank you. We're thankful for you and we would love to have you on again. This was awesome. Well, that's it for this episode on the Deconstructing Mamas podcast. We love that you tuned in and hope that this gave you a little bit of grace and space for your soul to breathe. Don't forget to catch up on any of our episodes that you missed. And remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook 
at the Deconstructing Mamas. That's where you'll find all the information that you need about the podcast, as well as on both of our websites, estherjoygets.com and elizabethpetters.com, as well as our brand new website, deconstructingmamas.com. If you would like to support the podcast, please leave us a review where you listen and especially tell others about the show. Thanks for listening and come back again for our next episode. We can't wait to be on the other side of your headphones.